0: at paypal.me forward slash Pod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. All right, folks, uh, we're back with a question answer episode. So we've got, I think, four or five to kind of go through today. Um, our first one comes from Scott Perry and he asks, during the Jimmy Moore podcast, he stated that cholesterol were firefighters for inflammation in the body. It seemed as though he felt that 200 plus total cholesterol is the place to be. I've never had a cholesterol reading higher than 148 total cholesterol, even when eating standard American diet. We never hear about how to raise cholesterol numbers, only how to lower them. My most recent test results are uh, total cholesterol 148 triglycerides 19 hgl 67 ldl 77 cholesterol hdr ratio 2.2 i was eating mostly keto and intermittent fasting during this time with some cheat days would there be reason with these numbers to try to increase cholesterol my question is how would someone go about raising their numbers in a proper way thank you and love the show
1: yeah. Um, I don't think you need to raise your cholesterol numbers. I don't think you need to be concerned that it's, you know, 148. I think you're, 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 you're well within the normal range. I think if your cholesterol, total cholesterol was 70 or something like that, then you could, you would, you be starting to see problems with, uh, um, potential problems down the road, you know, with neurodegenerative issues potentially based on associational studies. But, uh, I wouldn't be concerned about it, quite honestly. I think that's a short answer. I think the cholesterol, uh, probably a lot of it is genetically determined. And I would I would be more inclined to look at the other numbers that you have, which, by the way, with triglycerides of 19, HDL 67, uh, look very favorable. And so your ratios are all looking good. So I wouldn't get concerned about trying to get my cholesterol over 200, certainly. Um, I think that... Uh, you know, we, we have to, we have to put in cardiovascular risk and risk for other things in, in the, as part of the overall package. And I don't think that, uh, 148 is a problem. It sounds like that's the highest it's ever been. So you're, you're, you're raising it regardless. Uh, but I don't think you, you have to get it over 200 to, to, to achieve any sort of perfect cholesterol level. I don't know that we have any evidence that would support that, you know, or any significant evidence would say that 200 is the ideal amount. Zach, any comments?
0: Yeah. I mean, I would just, uh, my limited knowledge, I would agree. I, I think like what I would look at with that is cool. You have a clean lipid profile and that means you can spend your time worrying about other stuff, <laughs> focusing on other stuff. So, um, you know, the folks I think who are probably interesting are the ones who are really healthy on every metric other than their lipid profile, according to what we, we know. And, you know, they're the ones that probably have to ask questions to try to decide what to do next. You seem like you can kind of just keep doing what you're doing nutritionally and start skewing things more towards other things you're interested in.
1: All right. Let's go to on to Austin Jones. Hi, Zach and Sean. Thanks for creating such a diverse and interesting show. I've been listen, I've been a listener since hearing Sean and Rob Wolf's podcast. Here's a little background of myself for my question. I'm 31, 5'11", 180 pounds, around 13% body fat. I eat 90% carb, mostly beef, and I've been trying to keep my protein between 150 200 grams a day, which is about the most I've been able to stomach. I do CrossFit four days a week with some strength work mixed in most days. I've been eating paleo for the last several years, which kept me around 16 to 70% body fat. The switch to keto this January got me to 14% uh, within a month, and then going mostly carnivore has dropped it further since. To be frank, most of my desire to continue losing body fat is aesthetic. I already feel amazing. I'm performing better than ever but the progress has dramatically slowed on the last couple of months. Eating exact same amount of diet of 2,200 calories a day, I went from looking like I'd have abs in no time to to looking and weighing exactly the same for the past six months. So here's a question. One, if I'm 180 and around 13% body fat, I'll probably have achieved my aesthetic goal when I drop to around 170, give or take. But I'm not particularly interested in being that small long term. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is there an argument to be made for a period periodized approach where I first try to ramp up my calories while doing more regimented strength program before leaning out traditional bulk and cut carnivore style? I've heard you both recommending titrating down the fat in order to reach leanness goals. However, I'm inclined to think that I'm not muscular enough to make that work well at this point. I also seem to think I also seem to have to only have a hard time losing the fat. I've had all my life. I've never been more lean than I am now, in spite of being an athlete my whole life. Anecdotally, it's just, anecdotally, it's been easy to lose the recent fat I had gained. I would just cut the carbs down and it would be gone in a matter of weeks. However, every cutting attempt I've done to date stalls around this point. What are the mechanisms in place that make some fat cells more resistant than others? I'm looking forward to hearing you keep the good work. I'll. T- uh, yeah. Anyway,
0: that's awesome. Zach, tell him how to get to be shredded <laughs> down to 6% body 6% fat. 6% body fat. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you could run a hundred some miles a week and that'll get you down there, but I feel like that's going to be counterproductive for his goals if he wants to not be 170 pounds. Um, yeah. I mean, I think my move here would be if your goal is to be kind of at your current weight, but just leaner, uh, I would first focus on building muscle and then do the cutting. Cause the, the muscle is going to be the real metabolic driver for you. So if you can increase, let's say you add, you know, 10 pounds of, of lean muscle to your body, you know, then when you go back and try to cut down to those single digit body fat percentages, it's just going to be much easier. Cause it sounds like for, for this particular situation, he's kind of been dieting for quite a while and now he's hit a plateau or a stall. So to kind of continue to diet down to get to a weight that he's not even happy with, uh, that, that wouldn't be the move I would go with. I would try to get the amount of lean muscle I would be happy with and then focus on losing the fat down to whatever percentage you're trying to, trying to target. And I think while I was doing that, while I was bulking, I would probably be very open to eating quite a bit of protein, uh, in in the context of, you know, lifting heavy weights. Um, and I say all this with an endurance running (laughs) background. So, um, I would, I would actually suggest since the episode will be out by the time this one releases is check out our interview with Ella Bruce, because she's done a lot with kind of keto protein and bodybuilding type stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, And I don't know how accurate that what you're testing 13% body fat is, is relatively lean, you know? And so there's a point where, um, you know, normal physiology wants to, wants to keep a little bit of fat on us just for health reasons. And so, you know, if you, if your only goal is aesthetic and you don't mind that your performance tanks and you don't mind that you feel awful, uh, you know, I mean, I think you have to make those decisions that, uh, is it worth it? First of all. And if, 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 if only, to get down there to say you did it to take a picture um, and then you find that your, your numbers and CrossFit go down and the way you feel is worse, I, I would say, you know, is, is it actually worth it trying to do this? But having said that, what I would do, um, you know, and you've got kind of a schizophrenic goal, you want to get, you want to gain weight and then you want to get down. So I mean, you got to pick a, pick a, you got to pick a path cause you're not going to do both. I mean the notion that you can um, put on muscle and get shredded at the same time when you're already at 13% body fat is largely fantasy for the most part, you know, outside of drugs and, and, and those types of things. And so if you want to go down that route, that would be something you might be able to do. But I mean, I think pick what you want to concentrate on. If you want to get bigger and stronger, you're going to eat more, eat more protein, train hard, train appropriately. And then when it comes time to lose more body fat, you're going to um, you know reduce you know increase the protein reduce the reduce the fat uh you know continue with the strength training so you don't lose muscle and just be uh persistent about it and you've got to be comfortable spending some time being a little bit hungry i mean that that's that's ultimately what's going to get you to those aesthetic levels anybody that gets down there uh is hungry and they're not happy typically just so you know so anyway enjoy your quest um Anyway, okay, so let me go with the, uh, Jack, you want to read the next one?
0: Sure. Uh, this one's from Elaine Gogan, I believe is how you say the last name. It says, hey, guys, I was looking online for the answer to this question. I failed to find some satisfying info on it. I went full keto about four weeks ago. I have played with it and also with fasting, intermittent fasting, two to three day fasts, long runs, fasted up to four hours in the morning with food for the last year or more. But when I go keto, I find that my zone two or math training zone speed has to be lower to stay in zone two, not past my math heart rate. Before keto, I was getting it down to close to 5, 10 minutes per kilometer at 145 heart rate. And now on keto, I'm more like 5 minutes and 30 seconds per kilometer at 145 uh, heart rate. What would cause that? And, and do you expect that will normalize? seems like all heart rate produced a lower pace now, even like at 170 to 180 beats per minute. In a way, it's like I'm more efficient because I can run longer without fuel food, but as far as speed, I am also less efficient. As is, It's that making ketones takes more energy, therefore putting a higher demand on cardiovascular system. When I go keto, I even notice my heart rate at rest can be 5 to 8 beats per minute higher, this happened also when I did six weeks of keto about six months ago. Any input info would be gladly appreciated. Thank you.
1: Yeah, Zach, I'm gonna I'm just gonna do a brief comment because this is kind of more up your at your alley. But sure, I, I would just say you know four weeks you're probably still in an adaptation phase. I mean I just don't think you you've kind of you've, you, from from my experience for athletes transitioning to ketogenic or even carnivorous style diets, I find it's a three to six month process, and so you're probably just not through the transition phase but Zach do you have any more insight I know you're you're much more into the math stuff than I am
0: yeah yeah and first I'll just share with listeners who aren't familiar with math that stands for maximum aerobic function and it's a training principle that kind of advocates for you to get as efficient as possible within a very kind of specific heart rate range and from my experience what that kind of does is it gets you to be very very good at that kind of system of training And then if you kind of deviate from that, your heart rate can maybe be a little more erratic. So a lot of times people who are using that type of a training methodology, you know, they're pretty certain that whatever activity they're preparing for is going to be semi close to kind of that heart rate range. Uh, I personally use maximum function as kind of a foundational component to my training where I feel like it's like the ideal base. Uh, with that said, maximum work function protocol is essentially, you're taking this number 180 and you're subtracting your age, and then you're kind of adding and subtracting two to three beats per minute. You can, uh, as like a range to target. And then someone who's been healthy and training for a while can kind of add maybe five, six, seven beats per minute to that total and kind of have that range that they're just starting to target. Uh, with, and, and to get into more with a the question, the, the keto stuff, raising your heart rate, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, this happens to me every time. Like I'll go strict keto after a big race. And then once I start kind of getting back into training, I'll start building some base. And once I start getting into a place where I start focusing on doing the maximum aerobic function type stuff, I'll notice that my heart rate is actually higher at a given pace as well. And in terms of why that's happening, essentially, I mean, it's just going to take your body a little more work to break down a fatty acid and use it as a fuel source versus metabolizing muscle glycogen or an exogenous carbohydrate source. The advantage of carbohydrates are essentially that they're just a quicker acting fuel source. So if you look at them as kind of like this small little punch of rocket fuel, or kind of similar to maybe you would look at caffeine, where someone who is relatively fat adapted uh, can kind of use them as that tool when they want to, to try to nail a specific workout, then I think that's kind of where they fit within that world. And what I notice is when I kind of get into that phase of training where my volume's high in my frequency is, you know, I'm training quite often. There's not a lot of space between workouts. It, you know, that's when I will burn back a little bit of carbohydrate and a little bit makes my heart rate come right back down at that given pace. So you could maybe play around with that and see if that does anything. Uh, in terms of you kind of adapting to it, uh, you might if you just spend more time doing maximum aerobic function type training uh, and keeping your heart rate in those ranges and just watching your pace come down over time. But I think there probably is some nuance with the timing. Four weeks is really a uh, short period of time, so you might see some improvements. I think uh, Dr. Dominic Diagostino says, that, like, for athletic purposes, you probably are looking at more like six months, sometimes eight months, before you start seeing some of the real kind of intriguing benefits from that. Uh, so I would be cognizant of that if you want to stay the course. Um, I think I hit on most of it. Uh, the other thing I'll say, too, is just when it comes to endurance training in general, I think your goal, if, if your goal is purely performance – then I think you wanna look at it more like, I wanna get as fat adapted as I need to get versus get as fat adapted as possible. So if you go strict keto or like zero carb, you're going into this world of I'm gonna get as fat adapted as I can possibly get. Then you need to kind of look at what you're preparing yourself for. Are you preparing yourself for something that it benefits you to be as fat adapted as you possibly can get, potentially at the expense of being able to use an exogenous glucose source? If the answer is yes, then I guess, you know, go as fat adapted as you want or as as you can. If your answer is, I want to be able to utilize a glucose source during a race or during a big training session, I think you want to be a little more um, cognizant of kind of the down regulation that might happen in your body's ability to kind of clear that if you're going to use it without having it kind of in your daily life at all. That's kind of where, where I would put everything with this. Um, the other thing that I will mention too, is if you're going to follow a maximum aerobic function training plan, that 180 minus your age is kind of a catch all formula. So they're taking like basically what they would expect most people to fall under. What I find is sometimes that can be a little deceiving for folks who have like an abnormal max heart rate. So folks who have like a really low max heart rate or a really high max heart rate tend to not fall within the parameters of that formula quite as cleanly as someone who kind of has an average max heart rate. So you can do a max heart rate test. You can go into the lab and get that done, or you can do some field tests. I've got a couple field tests that I like, uh, that one involves a hill, one involves a track or a flat stretch of road that's 400 meters. Uh, If you go to my YouTube channel, I have a detailed explanation of how to do those max heart rate tests. And that can maybe give you a number that would be a little more applicable to be using as your, your kind of standard 180 number if you're interested. All right, folks, this episode of Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a meat delivery company that brings you high-quality beef, chicken, pork, salmon, and scallops. What does this mean? All products are natural and humanely raised or sustainably wild-caught, as is the case with their salmon and scallops. If you are concerned with how the animals you eat were raised, rest assured... ButcherBox partners with farmers who are inspired by Dr. Temple Grandin, a member of the Humane Farm Animal Care Program's scientific committee. Their beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. The chicken is organic and the pork is heritage breed with no added sugar. So head over to ButcherBox.com and place an order today and don't forget to enter promo code HPO for a discount. Thank you for supporting one of our longstanding sponsors. Now, back to the show.
1: Good stuff, Zach. So let me read your next one. This is from Rain Bedard. Hi, Sean and Zach. I'm writing this at 3 a.m. Please forgive errors. I'm too tired to correct them. Short and sweet. <laughs> Due to my great success in carnivore, I'm healed. Lost weight, blah, 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 blah. We know it works. The metal that has been installed in my body is shifting due to my size reduction. I see no info anywhere in this regard. I have a cage in spine L4 and 5. I also have metal in my chest from mitral valve replacement two years ago. Well, last week, my back showed signs of movement. Tonight, my sternum. I know the familiar pain in locations. Not sure where to go from here. Orthopedic only or individual body location doctors. I think this situation is worth exploring further. Love your show. Sean, you are my first mentor, mentor in my new life. Zach, you are needed and a terrific partner. Health and ongoing success. You are saving us one by one. Zach, you want to take, you want to take on the orthopedic <laughs> hardware question? <laughs> Oof,
0: yeah. I feel like I'm, I'm more inclined to lead him down the wrong path. Um, yeah, I might have to punt this one to you and uh, all right. Uh, in.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, well, I mean, first of all, I think if you're concerned about, you know, shifting of, of, of hardware, I mean, just, you got to get an x-ray. I mean, you, you, you know, you need to go see the orthopedic surgeon and install it ideally ideally, and he'll have the previous records to say, is it truly shifting? Because I, I don't know that, uh, uh, you know, without, without looking at it, I, I can't make any comments. And if it's shifting, you have to see why it's shifting. And there's reasons for that. Uh, is it an infection? Is it, uh, uh, you know, the hardware does not not incorporate? I don't know how long it's been in there. Yeah, so on and so forth as far as the, the, the wire, you know, the mitral valve replacement. If you've got a metal valve, I mean, I, again, I don't know the details. I'm not, I'm not sure if you're talking about sternotomy wires where they, if they opened up your chest and put sternal wiring in there. Um, sometimes those things can be removed uh, if they're irritating. Uh, so, I mean, just in, in, in general, the hardware, you got to get it looked at and see why it's, why it's potentially shifting or if it's shifting and it's maybe something that uh, is transient and not really the issue you think it is. And so the short answer is you got to get a picture. You got to get pictures of it. You got to get images to see what's going on there. And, and, you know, thank you for the nice words and I'm glad that you're healing and gotten healthier and, and lost weight. Um, but I would, you know, like I said, if you, if you think it's shifting, you, you just need to get it seen. And an orthopedic surgeon or a spine surgeon, maybe you had a neurosurgeon that put in, there's both orthopedics and neurosurgeons that put in hardware for, for the spine. So ideally go see the person to put it in, if feasible, if not, go see someone that does that. Uh, and then also same thing with the uh, uh, sternotomy wires, because the only, uh, an orthopedic surgeon is going to have no interest in your sternotomy wires, I can tell you. Uh, you're going to have to see a cardiothoracic surgeon. So those are the two places you need to go. All right.
0: Zach, you want to read about Matt Nichol? Sure. Matt Nichol, rather. Matt Nicole says, Hey guys, I love your show. For three years, I've transitioned from low carb, high fat to low carb, high protein to zero carb, high protein. For the last seven years, note four years longer than low carb, I've gotten kidney stones so severe I have to be hospitalized. I have, or I've also lost about... 80 pounds from 270 to 190 and brought my HbA1c down from 6.4 to 5.0. The last stones were calcium oxalate, not uric acid. On carnivore, I eat next to zero oxalates. I drink tons of water and moderate brewed coffee. I eat pink Himalayan salt, supplement with magnesium glycinate, full bone meal calcium, and low salt. I know there's no good evidence which points to kidney function being an issue with carnivore-style diets, but I'm curious if there is any pathway which could lead to calcium oxalate stones from a high-protein diet.
1: Okay, so good question. Um, so certainly uh, we know the majority of, of kidney stones are calcium oxalate stones. Uh, there are some uh, urate stones that can occur um, we do know that uh, urate, I believe urate, uric acid can also combine with oxalates. I believe there's a subset of that; it's a minority, and that can occur in in, in the situation of acidified urine. And so, a high protein diet can acidify your urine. So, potentially, yes. I mean, there is there's a mechanism for that. Also, if there is oxalate dumping going on, and again, I don't know uh, exactly how long you've been on on this carnivorous diet and cutting out all your oxalates, but that may be another reason to precipitate these. Now, you don't really say if you're currently having stones and, and if it's a current issue. You know, I guess I would look at what was the last imaging you had and how many stones did you still have? And if they're still forming, are you forming new stones? Or are you just getting rid of old stones? Uh, so that's, that's kind of the question there. But I think in general, um, I, I, I've seen that, that uh, carnivore-style diets seem to help in general with kidney stones but it doesn't guarantee there'll be no evidence of kidney stones. Um, drink tons of water, moderate brew coffee, and pick Himalayan salt, magnesium glycinate. Um, so I would, I would, like I said, I would like to see what uh, you know, what's the latest imaging on your kidneys show. And if, it's, if, you've, if you're forming new stones, uh, then it would be nice to know what those stones are made out of. Uh, I would suspect that you're probably not forming new stones unless you have data that conflicts with that uh, you know, keeping hydrated it, it generally is a good idea. Uh, there is, uh, you know, as far as protein on the kidneys in general, we've had many discussions on that on our podcast with guys like Stu Phillips, Don Lehman, Jose Antonio, Ted Naiman, Jason Fung, all those guys, you know, protein doesn't seem to adversely c- cause kidney function to decrease, but stones are concerned. Uh, and, and like I said, oxalates are the primary cause, maybe oxalate dumping, perhaps a uric acid stone would, would, would occur in, in a high-protein environment. But that tends to uh, – the I think there, there's more going on than just concentrations of oxalates or urates. Uh, it's probably a relation to overall inflammatory picture. And so as that resolves as well, you're probably less likely to precipitate stones. There's, there's some interesting stuff on – um, precipitation of uh, well uric, uric acid crystals and that has to do with more than just the, the concentration of the urates um, it has to do with immunoglobulins it has to do with inflammatory things it has to do with ph it has to do with temperature so all those things can go in, into that so you may be raising your uric acid level a little bit potentially potentially not but you may be decreasing other factors that are going to precipitate stones so hard to say for sure. Zach, any comments on this? I know one of yeah. your specialties is, is, is a kidney stone guy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I will add that I think if I'm reading correctly that the kidney stones began seven years ago, which is four years longer than what he's been doing for uh, the, the, the ketogenic style of things, much less the carnivore. So it seems like that was an issue that came in before the dietary changes. So it would seem to me that the dietary changes at least aren't negatively impacting that and then when you look at the the massive weight loss from 270 down to 190 that's obviously a really big win uh hba1c going from 6.4 to 5.0 is obviously a good thing uh so then it just kind of comes down to i guess maybe a little more a little more info as to what's going on like are the kidney stones more frequent less frequent as frequent um without knowing that, I guess we don't really know if maybe the dietary stuff is making any marginal or dramatic improvements on that versus kind of stagnating or getting worse. Um, I think I was, you know, the other thing I remembered when we had Dr. Sally Norton on the show is she was talking about the oxalate dumping and that if you are having problems with oxalates, if you go from like, I guess it would be a hundred to zero in this context of a descriptor instead of zero to a hundred. If you're going from kind of your diet that is really rich in oxalates down to eliminating them altogether, she said that could sometimes be, if I remember correctly, like not the best way to do it because it's almost like it's too aggressive of a purge. Uh, And I guess if you're going carnivore, you're essentially dumping or you're essentially limiting all oxalates from your diet for the most part. And, you know, so maybe, maybe it went from high oxalate to no oxalate and that could be triggering some issues. Uh, I don't know if you remember anything about that, Sean, or.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, there's a diffusion gradient. I mean, if you're, if you have oxalates that are crystallized in your joints or your kidneys or your whatever tissues, and then we see this diffusion gradient go down where you have very little circulating oxalate in serum or other other fluids then what happens is those crystals will will just kind of run down that diffusion gradient and then re-solu- the re resolubilize, uh you know go into solute and then maybe recrystallize somewhere else so that's certainly a, that certainly that is that is the rationale behind sort of gradually transitioning you know out of the oxalates but it sounds like he's past that point anyway it sounds like he's already kind of eliminated that so mm-hmm. but, Again, the question is, is he still having active stones? And I I don't know know the
0: the email even addresses that question. So um, I think that was the last question, right, Zach? Yeah, yeah. This is a a new for human performance outliers. We've gotten to the bottom of our listener questions. So um, I think some of that might be just because, you know, we do these every couple months. And in the beginning, we got a ton of questions right away. And people are probably maybe wondering why their answer question gets answered three, four months down the road. And it's just kind of the reality of scheduling and everything like that and making sure we're still bringing good quality guests on the show. But with that being said, know that if you send in a question soon, you will be at the top of the list and your, your question will be answered at our next Q&A. So this is the time to get your, answer, your questions answered quickly. If you want to send something over to us, feel free to do that. We'll add it and it'll likely show up on the next one.
1: All right. Good stuff. Um, any other updates, news we've got, uh, we're continuing to put out the podcasts. guests. Uh, we are still uh, accepting sponsors. If you're interested in sponsoring a show, uh, send us a, a message and we'll get you our sponsorship packages. Uh, we are uh, looking forward to, I guess what 2020 will be going into our, how many, so we've got how many seasons? we? I think we'll, I think we're, I think we're... Is it two years in April or yeah, yeah, it has gotta it's, be two? Yeah, two years in April, so still 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 here, still doing well, still getting great yeah. guests. We're uh,
0: getting close to two hundred episodes, so awesome. All right. Well, <laughs> thanks, Zach. Awesome. Take care, everyone. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers Podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.